Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com, or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to the coach's coach, Dave Allred, and the theme is pressure. Good morning. How are you? Uh, very good, very good. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure having you on Don't Turn With The Score. As you know, I've been... Busting a gut for, I would say, about a year to get you on. And two Don't Turn With The Score alumni, Johnny Wilkinson and Matthew Saeed, they speak about you in such uh, ringing terms. So Johnny Wilkinson's called you a genius. As we know, you worked so closely with him during his career. Johnny was on uh, Don't Turn With The Score last year. Matthew Saeed, who was as well. So you are held in really high regard by people like that. You're currently doing some work with Johnny Sexton. I mean, you're really very in high demand. Well, it's a little bit hectic, but it, it, it's <laughs> it's. Um, I just find it's incredibly enjoyable and challenging. And the reason I say challenging is not necessarily um, it, it, it. Well, it is difficult, but it's an exciting difficulty. And I'm always, always learning. I don't know the answer. Mm. I'm getting close to it. 
But every time I think I'm getting closer, I realize how far away it is, which I know seems a little bit of a contradiction. But, you know, um, just the other day I was having a, a conversation with a with a very, very renowned and very experienced uh, golf coach. And we were talking about uh, communication uh, with players and how players react. And golf is one of these things that you practice every day, not unlike, you know, people have a musical instrument and so on. And the, the, the coach will often say, well, OK, uh, one extreme, the coach will say, what would you like to do? And does the traditional questioning. And of course, if the player, some players just don't like that. So they go, you're the coach, you tell me. And then there's the other extreme, which is just, this is what we're doing today. And the player goes, yep, okay. And if he disagrees, he sacks the coach. And, and so it goes on. And it's not unlike that in tennis. But there is a fertile halfway house. And we were discussing ways of controlling it. And it kind of brings the player to take greater responsibility. So you're, you're, the line will go, okay, so what do you think you need to do at, at the moment to make yourself more effective? Now, I've got some ideas. How about this, this, and this? And this is because... And you kind of invite the player to sort of, if you like, get involved in the mix. Yeah. And I've, I, I found it just by talking through the problem, I then created a continuum of coaching approach through language to get the player more involved. And I sort of got home last night and drew it all out and thought, wow, you know, that is a really, really good model. And the irony of it is that I'm actually um, doing a coaching education model for the elite coaches in the French Golf Federation and this is like hot off the press okay. and 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 it and it and it goes and it just goes on and on and on like that and yeah. and it you know I I often say I say to myself but I said to other people you know if I'm coaching the same way as I am now in two years time I'll be very very disappointed and yeah. if I had Johnny Wilkinson again, I would do things dramatically differently. Yeah. Johnny says a very similar thing, that it's, a, it's about always evolving and you're never the finished product and it's about lifelong learning. And you said that it's almost a paradox of, you know, not having the answer. The more you learn, the more you don't know kind of thing. But I mean, that's what Socrates said, wasn't it? The wise man knows how little he knows, essentially. Yeah. And, and you know, that is so true with human behaviour and coaching. I think coaching is um, sort of, I, I was going to call it a job, but really it's a vocation. Sure. And and I was also lucky that my background was in teaching and teaching in areas where students weren't necessarily learning wasn't the highest priority. Mm. I'll say that. And and I I really cut my teeth on, okay, so how can I get these kids... Uh, to to get switched on when, you know, they know they think they're failures, you know, their exam success or lack of success and so on and so forth. But one of the crucial factors is you must improve their self-esteem. And it's a really interesting and it's the same with pressure and same everything else. I was asked uh, the other day for a thing I did in Australia, uh, you know, what, what makes a good coach? And I said, well, I don't know what makes a good coach, 
But what a good coach can do is create an environment where the player, athlete, individual or group can totally commit to something to the point of failure or not able to match intention but still have their self-esteem intact. Mm. Now, that's that sounds quickly, oh, that's a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? And I said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Because how many times have you heard, you know, you try, try, try again and blah, blah, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, failure at the moment in society is something that people want to avoid and they don't embrace failure. So I dismiss failure and I say, well, it's not failure. It's actually you weren't able to match your intention. Now, what do we have to do differently to be able to do it? Whereas a lot of people go, okay, you failed. Now, this is what you need to improve on. Now, straight away, those two words, failure, improvement, are very emotive. And my self-esteem is, oh, I've got to improve, so I'm not very good now, mm. and I've failed. So I am not going to throw myself into the next attempt because, actually, I don't want to fail again. Mm. I, I don't want to have this reinforced. And if you go back and look at young kids, you know, and I don't know what age it starts. Sadly, it starts way too early. But young kids learning on their own or playing and trying to achieve something, they don't understand failure. And, and when they do something well, they get wired with excitement. And that's why they tend to learn quicker because they fail no emotion, fail no emotion. Then they succeed and then they go, wow. So they bookmark their own brain with success. Mm. And unfortunately, somehow, and it'd be a study all on its own, mm. when you get to adults is actually we bookmark the failure and we ignore the success. So self-esteem and fear of failure are intricately linked then? I believe so, yes. Because without the self-esteem, you, you won't go into this, what I euphemistically call the ugly zone. Yeah. And without going in the ugly zone then you, you're not going to improve. Yeah, and we'll explain what the ugly zone is shortly. But so, so in a nutshell, Dave, because like you said, you were a, a teacher before you moved into high performance and coaching. In a nutshell then, in terms of improving people's self-esteem, and in your case, it was people who obviously struggled, what are the key factors? I think, I think the key factor, the number one thing is respect. Do you, you know, just the way you, your demeanor and all the rest of it. I mean, uh, and I, I have got, I have got so much admiration for teachers. I really have. I think they are, they, you know, they're often the whipping boys of politicians and, you know, and all the rest of it and so on. But sometimes, and I can understand why, gee, I can understand it. They just get ragged. And so you, you shortcut it. Okay, guys, sit down, shut up, blah, 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 you know, and I, and if you got that, it sort of like declares war on the class and then it becomes an attritional thing. And I, I, I just found it interesting. And you often hear teachers talk about individuals and they go, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so in the class is a real pain in the butt. But actually, when you get him on his own and talk to him, he's a really nice kid or a really nice girl or, or whatever the case may be. And, and 
that was the clue to suddenly, well, why don't we just talk to the class like that? Mm. Now, I it, it took me a long time. This is not an overnight thing. But I found that if I treated the kids how I expected to be treated, yes, there was you know, there was a little bit of tension and there were some issues and all the rest of it. But by and large, most people are pretty decent and want to feel valued. Agreed, yeah. And, 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 and if that is your starting point after... And funnily enough, as I occasionally, while I'm in Bristol, I occasionally bump into old students and uh, or pupils as they were then, and they say, oh, can you remember me? And, of course, you know, as a teacher, there was, I don't know how many hundreds of people, you know, and I try and remember, said, I was in so-and-so and so-and-so, you taught me commerce or economics or PE or whatever it is. And he said, I don't know if you remember, but I was a real pain in PE until you sorted me out. And he said, I wish you'd teach my kids now. <laughs> and, I, and I kind of thought, you know, that's, that's a, I don't know whether that's a compliment or, yeah. or whatever. But, you know, it's, it's kind of nice when you, when you come across those nuggets and you think, you know what, it was hard work and it was exasperating and it, and it was wearing, but it was worth it. Yeah. You made a difference. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you said there. So it's... To, to foster self-esteem in people, a, a key thing then is to drop preconceptions that you may have of them. Because actually, I read an interesting article about the power of stereotypes. And what you seem to be saying there was was treating people as you found them and yes. not having this idea in your head, oh, OK, they're, they're bad or they're a pain in the bum. And having this this belief that, yeah, most people are decent people. And then if you if you have that attitude... It almost gets reflected back at you. Yeah, it does. And you know, funnily enough, I remember you know um, I'm um, uh, doing stuff with the Queensland Reds at the moment. Um, uh, Brad Thorne is the head coach, ex All Black, etc. Is incredible. Has set an incredible culture of the place. And one of the things I, you know, when the coaches, you know, when I first came, said, "Oh, do you want to... now let me just tell you about the players." And I said, "Look, I, I." I, I really respect that you're taking the time to tell me, but please don't tell me anything about them. Uh. And they and they were well, well, don't you want to know? I said I do want to know, but I want to take them as I find them. Yeah. I I don't want to have a preconceived notion about their ability or their attitude in particular. I just want to take them as I find them, and go from there. I said, and then, you know, give me a month or so and I'll come back to you and compare notes. But please don't, because once you put it in my brain, yeah. I'm not going to ignore it. It will be there. And if the player does something, you know, I'll be going, oh, well, that's typical. And I start putting him in the box and I, I don't want to put them in the box. I want to grow them from where they are. Now, I may come unstuck. I may make a mess and I may make mistakes, but I want to give the learner the best possible chance of improving from where they are now. It doesn't matter whether it's Johnny Sexton or whatever. You know, um, I, I did a session with Johnny, as you know, uh, two days ago. And um, yes, I know he missed two kicks and, and it, there was a technical reason why he missed them and so on and so forth. 
and he wanted to talk about it. And I said, Johnny, you know, that's fine, but I am I am interested technically, but I all I'm interested in now is from what we do right here, right now, going forward. Yeah. And and it and it it's difficult at times, but you know you can do nothing about history, but you can do everything about the future. Yeah. And, and I, you know, people sometimes think I'm a bit naive and a bit, you know, this is Alice in Wonderland. I said, well, you know, I don't think it is, and it will, it will mean I make mistakes. I know that, and I will get things wrong, but I'd like to think that the payback of developing kids or players or whatever outweighs those that the if you like the cost of the mistakes yeah so it's interesting i think that you're obviously a high performance coach now you're a teacher before so the principles you teach are universal aren't they you just happen to take them with top performing sports people you used to take them with school kids but they are absolutely universal so the the lessons you teach around pressure anyone can apply them in their life I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I, you know, I, I was trying to, before I came on, I was sort of having some thoughts about it because you could, you know, people say, well, what's pressure? What's the secret? I mean, the secret is there is no secret, yeah. you, you know, but the, the thing that, that we, we have, and, it, and it's a quite an interesting phenomenon, really. When people are young and don't understand the stigma around failure, they are prepared to commit themselves in this ugly zone and, and take the frustration with a smile and just keep going. And when they're successful, they're really hardwired and wow, okay? And, and they are trying to achieve, okay? Yeah, yeah. So that's the, that's the crucial part, right? Now, when we get a little bit older... Uh, I, mean, I don't know where this is, but certainly, you know, you talk to adults, for example, yeah. and they are now into this area of steady, instead of trying to achieve, we're now trying to not make mistakes. Yeah. So the not making mistakes is much more powerful than trying to achieve. And that's why so many people don't realize their potential because they don't want to get into the ugly zone. Uh, and so they stay in their comfort zone because that's an area where they're not going to make mistakes. And just to, just, just to be clear, Dave, so the ugly zone is, is essentially the opposite of the comfort yeah, zone. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ugly zone, if you can imagine, if I, if I give you a physical example of it, right? if let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's do a physical one, you can do 10 press-ups. And I said, okay, that's really good. And, and, and if I said to you every day, right, okay, so every day let's do 10 press-ups. That will get easier and easier and easier and easier. And it will be comfortable. And when I come into you and I say, right, we're doing 10 press-ups, you go, oh, yeah, fine, because I can do that. If, however, when you say I can do 10, I say, right, today we're going to try 12. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I do my 10. The 11, oh, that's a bit, come on, come on, 12, come on, 12, oh, and, and you fail. Yeah. Or you can't quite do it, so you don't match your intention. I said, what? Well done, outstanding effort. We're going to try that again tomorrow. Now, do you go away thinking, I don't want to do that again because I failed? Or do you go away thinking, God, this is really good. If I really put my back into this, I could do 12. I've never done 12 before. And that's the difference. Mm. So you get negative avoidance, 
which is, if you like, almost the disease of today. Yeah. And comfort. Yeah, yeah. Well, comfort, but not making mistakes. My yeah. self-esteem's intact. You know, blah blah sure, blah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's an article I read one where you know where where the essence of it is nobody buys green bananas anymore. They only buy the ripe ones they can eat today. And I'm saying to people, you've got to buy green bananas. <laughs> you've got to buy green bananas. And I, I'm doing some work with a little kid. Well, not a little kid now. He's actually taller than me, but I started with him. He was just turned 11, 12, Thomas Taylor, a bit kind of like an experiment. Because remember, I worked, started with Wilkinson when he was 16, 17. Yeah. And when I look back at that, even that was too late. So I, I'm trying this experiment, and I don't see him very often, but I, I, I do. It's more about mentally how to achieve, and it also percolates to his younger sister, and all they're interested in is getting better than I was before. Yeah. Am I better than I was yesterday? Am I better than I was next uh, last week? And they record those differences. And we all know the saying, uh, you know, the saying, success breeds success. Yeah. But we can't be bothered to find success. I mean, honestly, you know, we won the FA Cup. Well, that's successful. But what about the guy in the Screwfix League who just plays better than he played last week? because he was a back four defender and the, and the winger, instead of getting six crosses in, now only got two crosses in. Mm. We don't, we're not bothered. Yeah. And I'm saying, you know, you're missing the opportunity because it's not out, up in bright lights, it doesn't count. And I'm actually saying that the people that were successful in bright lights went through it when they were way, way, way away from the bright lights, they still started trying to get better. Yeah, it's that old mantra of if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. Yeah, absolutely. But uncomfortable doesn't mean you can smile and be uncomfortable. Yeah, because the uncomfortable is almost self-imposed. Because like you said, for children, being in that uncomfortable place, it, for them, it doesn't seem to be oftentimes such a big deal as it is for us grown-up people. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is that if you say, well, what gets you in the ugly zone? The one thing that does get you in the ugly zone is excitement. And if you look at young kids before they're going to go out to play, say, right, today you're going to go out and play soccer, but just sit still for a minute. No way they can sit still. They are cracking. They're like a little firecracker, ready to go because they're excited. And they're often excited about the unknown. Now, you, you know, I, I had a conversation, ironically, yesterday with somebody, and I, and I was talking to them about this. And I said, you know, if I said to... Um, an adult who'd never played golf. I said, look, I'd love to have a chat with you about your work. Why don't we go to the driving range? We'll hit a few balls and have a cup of tea afterwards and, and shoot the breeze. If somebody's never played before, they'll go, oh, yeah, I'll come and have a cup of tea, but I'm not sure about hitting a few balls. And all that is is I've never done it before, so I probably won't be any good. If I said that to a young kid right today... We're going to go and, and, and uh, have a cup of tea. We're going to have a chat about your schoolwork. But let's go to the golf range and let's try and hit a few balls. And they'll go, wow, I've never done that before. And I'm going, that's the difference. That's the difference. So what's happened during our development? And there's all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that kills that enthusiasm yeah. 
to get better and to and and if people say to me you know what do you actually do you know how can you coach Molinari you know professional golfer and then coach Jamie Cook who's a modern pentathlete you know where's the similarity and the similarity is the trying to get them to have a five-year-old brain yeah. attitude but a 25-year-old maturity of how to use it. Yeah, so rediscovering their childlike enthusiasm. Yes. That, that's all absolutely what it's about. It's, and you mentioned earlier, quickly, it's, it's, a, it's a case of orienteering, isn't it? So orienteering toward... Because you mentioned when it, when you get older, you have, say, this fear of failure, whereas when you're younger, it, it's not so much fear, it's moving towards something that, that it excites you. And whichever, I guess, you, you hold in your head whether it be, oh, I don't want this to happen, or, oh, this is exciting, that sounds fun, I do want to do that. In both cases, you've got something in your head that, that you're going to kind of be moving towards. Is that why...? Or, or, or moving away from. Right. So, you know, you know I, I'm enthusiastic, I want to get better, I'm, I'm starting on this journey, I'm going to practice. I mean, how many times does a piano player practice on their own and not get it right and just keep doing it again and just keep doing it again and so on? And that's quite a good, you know, that's quite a good metaphor for golf, actually. But, you know, how many, you know, and that's why young kids kind of enjoy it and, and, you know, parents go, oh, that's really good. Can you play that? And even though there's a bum note, mum still says that's really good. So there's an enthusiasm. But, of course, when we get better and better and better, then we try and avoid the mistakes. And so what we do is we come back a little bit. Well, I don't want to play that one because I'm not very good and I'll make a few, but I'll play this one because I know this one really well. Yeah. And I'm just saying, well, okay, that's fine. Well done for the one that you know really well. But let's have a go at the other one and let's enjoy the challenge. Right. And, and I, I, I kind of think that that gets lost. It's not a challenge. Um, it's not a real challenge unless there is an opportunity. There is an option of you not uh, matching your intention. I always think this is why Roger Federer has had such longevity and success because he's he's. Everyone says that when you watch him train, he has that childlike enthusiasm. He's always trying new things, so he still has that youthful exuberance. And and clearly that that love has propelled him forward, and he's what nearly forty and and still going. So that's a, I think a case in point. And I bet you, if you asked him how old he is, he'd have to think. <laughs> you know, and and I think that's really important as well. I yeah. don't give a monkey's how old somebody no. is. You can always get better than you were yesterday. Yeah. So it's focusing on your own lane and just and just looking to improve as well. Okay, look, right, Dave. Let's dive into a couple of the the. the because um, you've established with when it comes to pressure specifically, um, eight in your book anyway. You've established eight areas uh, that you've sort of broken down and talked about. Because when it comes to pressure, whether it be trying to hold a part or doing a speech, best man speech or a presentation at work, or even I guess you know for some people it might even just be social situations, whatever it be. You know we can all feel you know, pressure sure. in, in absolutely any situation. And, and you've broken it down into into uh, eight different areas. The first of which you talk about anxiety specifically, and, and this relates to, we've spoken about fear of failure, but what I found interesting is, so you've broken anxiety down into two forms, trait and state. So trait is the way we generally are at our base level of anxiety. Yeah. And state is 
is the anxiety we may feel in a specific situation. And that's the area you work on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, most of the people I work with are are probably it's an issue of state anxiety. I mean, particularly with young kids, adolescent kids, they're very boisterous and and, and loud and, and self-confident in certain areas, um, but they might not be very good at maths. Yeah. And that's where the issue comes. You, do, do you see what I mean? And, yeah. and somebody can be, you know, I'm, I'm really good at this and I feel good about myself and so on, but, oh, I don't want to do that. And, and it is that I, I cannot dent my self-esteem. Yeah. And few few people are few people are, or certainly would have been grown up being anxious in every situation. Yeah, I think then I, you know, now you're getting to the areas of of um, uh, if you like. Okay, I don't want to do anything in case. Yeah, and I think then it is very piecemeal. But if I found somebody like that, um, I would probably um, look at help outside of my own expertise in in that area yeah um because you know i'm not an expert on mental health no, I'd, I'd like to think that i'm i can identify when there is a need for other expertise i yeah. don't want you know i'm i'm not a, a you know i don't fix everything what i try and do is to help people who are on the road to want to achieve from whatever level that's where I can help them. Yeah. Um, if somebody is it, it has got a, you know, a, a, a trait where I'm anxious about everything, I might be able to give them some principles. But I would like to work with somebody who's got more expertise in in that particular area. Sure. So we've spoken about whether you're moving towards or away from something. Yeah. And whether you're motivated, say, by avoidance, i.e., moving away from stress. So We're moving away from the from the situation that may create a right. mistake, yeah. you know, and I'm fear of failure. What will my friends say? Blah, blah, blah. All of that sort of stuff. So how do you switch someone then from being motivated by avoidance to being motivated towards moving towards what they do want? I think that one of the things is, 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 uh, I mean, I'm not a great um advocate of looking back too far, but actually try and find something in their life where they can do. How did they feel about that? Uh, and, and, and perhaps retrace that they couldn't do it all the time so that, you know, they have achieved something. And then start them off in an area where it is going to be a win. Mm. And, and it's finding that. And this is how you sort of find your level. So if I just, let's go back to the press-up example, right? I know you can do 10 press-ups. OK, so we'll look at the 10 press ups and you do the 10 press ups. And I'm saying, well, you know, that's outstanding. I love your technique. So I will reinforce the process. And, and, and we all know that one of the, the big principles about performing under pressure, if you focus on the process, the outcome looks after itself. If, however, your worry about whether or not you achieve the outcome, it detracts you from the very process of doing it. And that's where you fall down. OK, so let's look at the process of the press up. All right? And then I'm going to say to you, OK, so now we're going to try for 12. Normally you can do 10. But what I'd like you to focus on, and it will be part of the pre a part of the process. So it might be just to make it easier. I want you to just tense your tummy 
so that your body is much straighter. And, and now I want you to feel that you're pushing the floor down rather than trying to lift your weight up. So I kind of reversing it, you know, and saying, well, now have a go at that. Now just push the floor away from you. You know, so I'm I'm sort of taking the process and going, right, OK, well, we can reframe this now and it will get, if you like, less intense. I'm taking away the sort of the grunt out of it and giving you something else. And it's amazing how some of the times, you know, when I talk about people uh, who want to help with their fitness and they say, well, you know, I can run for 10 minutes. But after that, I said, well, I'll tell you what, why not count the number of breaths you take? Why not get yourself into an area where you're focusing on something else? How many lampposts do you go past? And it's amazing how, you know, I, I tried that. I, I ran for 10 minutes and then on the way back, I decided to run, but I counted how many breaths it took. And I got to the end and I didn't realize I'd got to there because I was so wrapped up in just counting my breathing. So the breathing, if you know, is part of the process. So if I get you totally focused on the process, then the outcome tends to look after itself. And and it's finding your start point. And it was Aristotle that said, man who competes with fellow man is noble, but true nobility is man who competes with his previous self. So my first port of call is to say, where is your self now? Where's your benchmark? And I don't care where it is because we're going to work in your margin. So if you can do, let's just take the precip example again. If you can do 10, I'm working at 11 and 12. If you can do 25, I'm working at 26, 27. It doesn't matter whether it's 25 or 10. I don't care. Something you talk about a lot, Dave, is posture. Yes. And this is such an instantly applicable thing because when I've read your work around this, I know that when I feel anxious, stressed, I'll sh I feel like I shrink. You, yes. You, you, almost, you want to almost hide away in plain sight, if you like. And, and what you're saying is flip it around get your body ahead of the mind, not the other way around. Yes, absolutely. And and in fact, you know, that, that came a lot of it from golf, where when I was working with players and I'd watch them and, you know, they, they hit a good shot and they're walking around, head up, in control, command, bring it on, all of that sort of stuff. Hit a bad shot, shoulders full, rounded, chin down, tension. And then you start thinking, okay, so when you hit a bad shot, you're not going to be in a good state for the next shot. And, and when anything happens in your life where it doesn't match your intention, the next event is the most important. So how do you prepare yourself? And posture is one of those. I remember working with a fast bowler, you know, and, and we we had quite a chuckle about posture and so on. And it is fake it till you make it. And, and it, the, the mind and the body are connected. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's why in the military, you know, one of the, the issues of marching and parading and posture and discipline and all of that is a kind of prerequisite to having a mindset of I can do this. Yeah. You know, I, I am set on this. And when you look at um, players, 
you know, the posture is is so crucial. And I'm sure, um, I, I don't know, but I've watched office workers and we've found that actually if they've got a difficult phone call, it's better to stand up. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So stand up and talk to them. Because if you stand up, you're likely to be in a better postural position. You're in control. And that comes through in your voice and your demeanor and everything else. If you're, if you're sitting down taking a difficult phone call and your shoulders are rounded and you've got your elbows on the desk, already there's a sort of subservient attitude to the situation rather than stand up, take it on. And it's quite an interesting little phenomenon. that If you curl up and, and, and you look at the problem, chances are you're looking up to the problem and the problem's quite big. If you stand up, you're looking down on the problem and the problem is usually smaller than you. So the body's sending the message to the mind. Absolutely, and, yeah. And so, for example, someone doing a, a presentation they feel nervous would be, okay, make sure your shoulders are back, make sure you're taking up space and that will actually send positive messages to your mind and not only make you appear more confident and at ease, but actually feel that way. Yeah, and you, and you might say to somebody, okay, look, if you're giving a presentation, okay, um, make sure you've got a zone area at the back of the room that you can look at where your head is level and in control and looking good. You know, so instead of looking at the people, if the people are sitting down and you're standing up, then sometimes you have to drop your head down to make eye contact. Now, eye contact is important, but this sort of general gaze, well, it isn't really a gaze, but it's a, a position where you can see everything, your head needs to be up. And, and take control and keep resetting your posture. And it's amazing how that enables you to pace how you're talking to people. And it, and it shows 
I was going to say gives the impression, but it shows you are in control. But actually, really what's happening is you're controlling your body, which in turn is controlling you. A technique that I use, Dave, uh, interested to hear what you think of it. If I'm doing a public presentation, if I'm doing a talk in front of a big group of people, then what I try and do, obviously be standing up, also move around a bit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would, uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I've watched the Rolling Stones live yeah. a couple of times yeah. and I look at Mick Jagger. He owns the stage and he owns the stage because he goes from side to side, whether he's jumping and dancing or whatever. He owns the place yeah. and he kind of goes to the parameters of all of it to show that he owns it. And I think that um, I, I, I think that you can become very wooden and planted if you don't walk round. And walking round and moving gives you pauses and control yeah. rather than just, you know, almost autopilot, bum, 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 you know. Yeah. And, and I always feel sorry for somebody because sometimes I see people where the content of what they're doing is really good. And you often say, God, I'd like to get the, 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 um, the sort of script from that. But their delivery yeah. is just monotone, a bit wet, uh, yeah. you know, and you just think, gosh, you know, people are not engaged here. So engagement is changing, moving around, um, you know, and, and I think that is so important. So channel you're in a Mick Jagger. Yeah, I mean, imagining Mick just sat on a stool in the front all hunched up. It wouldn't work, would it? No, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, the irony of it is all the others are like that. Yeah. But, so which but, allows Mick to flourish. Absolutely. That's and, 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 and Mick owns it. And, and, you know, you just think, wow. I mean, I remember at Twickenham, he did a live concert there and there was a, the, the sort of the walkways, the side of the stage were virtually the width of the pitch. And he would be, he'd, dance away to one side and actually sing to that group in the corner and yeah. get them up. And, and then he would dance to the middle and yeah. get that and then dance to the other side. You felt that, you know, wow, he's he's singing to everybody. Yeah. And anyone could actually, it's not actually rocket science, is it? You no. Know, it, it's, no. Anyone could apply a similar principle. Right, I want to move on, Dave, to language. So we talked about, for example, um, body language and posture and how important that is and and knowing whether you're moving towards something or away from something. You talk about the importance of language and the way we talk to ourselves and the way we talk to other people, both verbally and non-verbally. So what, what, what are the key things to learn about language when it applies to pressure? Right. Well, I think the number one thing is if you want to change anything in anybody you have to start with what they're doing right. Yeah. And and that, you know, we, that suddenly is, well, hang on a minute, I'm here to change things. I said, yeah, I know. But you need to, what's going right? And identify that. Because then the person suddenly takes note. If you say, right, they perform under pressure, what I need you to do, we need to sort your posture out. We need, to, let's say, goal kicking. We need to get your approach better so that you're, you know, you're going to the front of the ball. We need to get your foot strike better. And then the guy's going to be thinking, Jesus, what, what am I, you know, aren't I doing anything right? Yeah. And straight away, they're down. Now it's a massive mountain. Okay. Whereas if you actually say, do you know, your rhythm into the ball is outstanding. Oh, is it? 
I didn't 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 realize that. And and I love the way that your approach with your chest is awesome. So the formula is say what you're doing right and then just ask them to do a couple of things differently. And the key word is different, not better, but different. Mm. Now I'm feeling, pretty, you know, there was a guy, I think it was um, Blanchard who wrote a book, The One Minute Manager. Yeah. And, and, and it, it was so simple, it was frightening. But it was so simple that nobody took any notice of it. And the first page is, if you want to change anything in anybody, catch them doing something right. Yeah. And we don't. We just go straight on to, right, you need to do this. You need to fit. This needs to be better. The, you know, and as soon as I hear better or worse, I'm going, oh, no, oh, no. Because better means better than I am now. So therefore, I must be worse. And, and our self-talk, depending on where we are in our own sort of self-esteem, if we're not very high self-esteem, we're going to interpret it the worst. Gosh, I need to get better at this, 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 this. Well, bloody hell, I'm, I'm in a bit of a state here. But if, well, actually, I'm doing a lot of things really well. And all I have to do is to do this, this and this. Now, they might be incredibly difficult, those changes. I'm not saying they're easy, but I'm in a better place to take them on because I'm just doing something different. Yeah. I'm not having to improve because I'm not very good. I'm actually having to do something different. And there's a lot of stuff that I'm doing really well. Now, whatever you're doing, aren't you in such a better place than that? And I found myself going way, way, way back when I was teaching um, maths and English, you, you know, I, I, and particularly with some of the girls and, and, and some of the um, uh, uh, overseas girls that came in and, and their English was not great at all. And their written English was, you know, really, really way below par. I'd actually find myself, gosh, you've got really nice handwriting and the difference, they almost changed the way they sat in the chair. Amazing. Because nobody had said they were doing anything wrong. It would be covered in red ink. And what I found was I said to them, OK, look, OK, there's a couple of things we need to we need to have a little bit differently. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to underline where I think you can change it. So I haven't used the word mistake yet. You know, there's nothing worse than a kid who does his best or her best and it comes back covered in red ink. Do you know what? I have to say, Dave, I think this is an absolutely crucial point. And just to sort of summarise again, so always start with what someone's doing right and that including yourself and then move on to do differently. And this can be applied to your relationship with yourself, to your relationship, to your colleagues. And something that propped in my head is parenting because let, let's say... Uh, a parent has the best of intentions, love their child or whatever, but perhaps they're not just not an effusive type of person. And as a result, they're not picking up on the things that people have done well. And they're just, look, I'm trying to correct yes. and set them on the right stage. And that com comes over into perhaps not over the top criticism, but subtle and re repetitive criticism that then will chip away at that 
child's self-esteem and will leave them, I guess, with an internal dialogue similar. And their self-esteem could be really hit by something just because of a lack of awareness and a lack of this approach that you're talking about in that parent. Yeah, uh, I, 100%. 100%. And it's really interesting. Um, I do some lecturing um, with parents at a particular school, which is a very, very sporty school in Australia. And I try and say to the parents, I said, you know, you, 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 you go and pick your, your son or daughter, in, in, uh, you know, after, after team practice. And after, you know, you, of course you're keen and of course you're interested. But sometimes we get, we get the wrong questions because if I say to them, OK, so how did practice to go? And, you know, adolescent kids. Well, yeah, all right. OK. And then it's, are you in the team on Saturday? No. And then it's, oh, well, not to worry and blah, blah, blah. The kid knows he's failed. That's how, the way he thinks about it. OK. But if, however, you say, OK, um, did you enjoy practice today? Oh, uh, what did you learn? You know, did the coach say anything to you? And you ignore the outcome. In other words, we're just looking at the processes and eventually the kid will start opening up. And he said, well, what, do you, what did the coach say to you? So I need to practice my uh, left foot volleying. Really? Okay. Well, why don't we have a little go of that in the garden? And then he practices left foot volleying and parents says, do you know what? I'm so impressed with you. For the last five days in a row, you've gone out and you've done exactly 20 minutes practicing your left foot volleying. I'm so impressed with the way you've organized yourself and your discipline. And the kid's going to feel, it's almost the fact that I'm not in the team has nearly disappeared. Mm. And they go, oh, oh, yeah. And this is the key thing. I think sport is an incredible metaphor for life. I'll tell you that, yeah. And if you start commending attitude and application and discipline and time management, from a very young age, God, I'm so impressed with you. Every day you've gone out, you've done exactly 20 minutes, then you've come back and done your homework. That I am, I am, I am just impressed. I wish I could have done that when I was your age. Yeah. Now those processes will will be there for life. Yeah, they get internalised. Exactly, and he can do anything, mm. or she can do anything, and we tend to miss that. We go straight to the outcome. You in the team? No. Yeah. Oh, well, not to worry. Well, what, not to worry really means I'm actually disappointed in you, but I'm not going to say it. Yeah. And that's the way... The Even kid... if they're not, because it might just be a lack of skillful use of language, but it will be interpreted that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And, and language, you, uh, you know, uh, honestly, um, <laughs> language is the most powerful drug known to mankind and it is the most misused drug because we take everything for granted and we don't understand the impact it has with other people. And, you know, there's a great thing. The meaning of the message, OK, is the response you get, yeah. not what you say. So you need to start looking at, well, OK, so how will this be interpreted? And I've spent a lot of time looking at this. I, I've spent a lot of learning. I, I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of experimenting with players and so on. And and I've made loads of mistakes. Like I said, if I had my time again with Wilkinson, it'd be completely different. 
Um, and and that's how we learn. And I'm probably probably a little bit strange that I'm obsessive about improving. And one of the things about improving is you have to do it first to realize where you can improve. Mm. It's interesting when you said earlier about if people are saying to themselves, oh, you know, I need to do improve here, I need to improve here, I need to improve here, I need to improve here. Because it, it reminded me, actually, I was looking back recently on a few old uh, notebooks that I found around New Year's Eve stuff, you know, like this year I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. And it did strike me, crikey, I'm being a little bit harsh on myself there. It was all focusing on the on the things to improve rather than any recognition on any of the things that I've you know done well. It, 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 this is really interesting, this. Uh, my lecturer who took me through my PhD, a guy called Stuart Biddle, which I owe so much to. I must have been the worst student he's ever had, but, you know, he was outstanding. But the one piece of advice he said is never read it. And, and, you know, the thing about a PhD is you never find answers, but you suddenly get very skillful at asking better questions. And I made the mistake of reading it. And I looked at it and I'm thinking, who wrote this stuff? <laughs> but what it what but you gotta then understand it. How much have you improved since you wrote that? That's actually what you're really saying. So when you, you say to me, you know, I looked at my some of my stuff, manuscripts and so on, and I'm thinking, gosh, that wasn't very good. No. It was the best you could do at that time. Mm. Now look at where you are now. Yeah. How good is that? Mm. And we we interpret it the other way around. <laughs> that you actually say, God, I must have been crap then. No, you were good then, and now you're even better now. So getting a hold of the way we speak to ourselves and others, is that just a skill that just comes down to awareness and repetition? It's it's awareness first and repetition and and practice. Right. And you will, you'll suddenly say something, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't said it that way. Yeah. But that's how, that's how we learn. I still, sometimes when I say things, I'm very guarded now how I talk to anybody, whether it's, you know, Fran's new caddy or Fran or, whatever, or anybody, because I'm trying to, I want them to go, I want them to have a wow and gosh, I can achieve this. And yeah, God, if I did that just a little bit differently, and I don't want them to to put a, if if you like, um, I I want to be a fellow worker discovering stuff with them. Yeah. Okay. Right. A couple of other themes that you've um, highlighted, Dave. So uh, let's just quickly skip through this one, which is implicit and explicit, which I think relates a bit, where it's about not overloading ourselves mm. in the moment with too much information. Yeah. And so, for example, whether it be playing tennis, I know this from example, when the pressure's on and you're, you, you know, you think, do this, do that, do this, do that. And, and it just invariably doesn't work. But actually lower, lowering the cognitive load and just and, yeah. and, and letting the body work for itself because our unconscious brain is actually far more powerful and far more wise than, than our, the conscious self that we believe ourselves to be. 
Absolutely. And, and, and if we can let it run its course and we just focus on one or two things. I mean, if I give you a, a, a great person to read is Timothy Galway's Ill Tame in a Game of Golf. Read it. Uh, sorry, yeah. in a Game in of tennis, tennis. Yeah, amazing. And play the bounce hit. Yeah. And and there, the bounce hit applies to anything. Like I use it for doing snap drop goal. We call it catch hit, uh, all the rest of it. So what happens is you've got two conscious thoughts that are very deliberate, very accurate and very demanding. And subconsciously, you let your body get on with everything else. So just to, sorry, just to pick up there. So in, in the example of tennis, what you do when the ball's bouncing on the other person's side of the court, you go bounce. And when you're when when you're racket- no, when it's on your side, oh, okay. When, so- when, when the ball comes over on your side of the net, you say bounce. Yeah. The immediate second. time in second that it hits the ground, and then you say hit exactly the time that it hits your racket. And that gets rid of all the extraneous stuff and your body then realigns just, on just its own. Just gets on with it. Yeah, just gets on with it. Yeah, absolutely. So how yeah. could you apply that then? Let's think of an everyday work example or a so, let's say a social example or something like that. That, that how, how would that apply there? Well, I think if you went into... I mean, and I, I am, ironically... I know you find this hard. I'm very introverted. If I go to a party or a group of people and I don't know anybody, I find that so nerve-wracking right i really do you know i and, and i will gravitate i will rather gravitate to to the waiter who's serving the stuff than as than a total stranger because at least i can talk about you know this is really good this you know how, how did you put the you know blah 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 etc yeah, etc et yeah. you know and i i sort of find that as my crutch um, and I'm sort of looking around, waiting to be invited. I'm not very good at announcing. So if I really, really have to do it, I just think of, um, y- you know, the small talk of, hi, um, I I don't know anybody here. I just thought I'd introduce myself. And I'd be cringing inside <laughs> when I say it. But I, I'm, I'm Dave. And then I try and make a, you know, who's actually a lost soul and doesn't know anybody and try and make a, a bit of a joke about my crisis, if you follow me. And, and then so it comes across a complete non-threatening. And usually out of a group, there's somebody with a degree of sympathy that actually says... I know how you feel, and, and then you I think know, probably the, most people the, feel yeah. like that to a certain degree. Anyway, you go to any party in Britain, and you know people might cover it up with booze, but generally, I think more people feel like that than than don't. Yeah, I, I know, but then, but what if you're like me and you don't drink? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. I, so you, you know, but I, so I, I kind of have a little script that I probably have to rehearse. It's fine. So and, you wouldn't uh, overload yourself again with no, oh, no, no, oh, how's no. this going to go? And da, da, no. Da, da. no, it's 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 equivalent to that bounce. Yeah, hit. yeah, yeah. So if I get uh, oh, I know how you feel, then I know you know there's an opening, yeah. and often they'll say, well, you know, and I, I said, oh, well, how how who do you know here? Yeah. And they might oh, well, I don't know anybody either. Oh, so what do you do then? Yeah, you know, and yeah. and then it's, and then we're we're often running and so on. But the first the first bit I'm wincing so i i i know this sounds silly so i do the old chin back to make sure i'm knocking i'm not looking too anxious i honestly i i get my posture right i rehearse the line and then i take the 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 jump and i try and wait for a little bit of a pause in a group um 
doesn't you know sometimes i'll i'll give up on that group and go to another one yeah. or i might go back to the waiter and have a chat with him <laughs> well the, so this shows though doesn't it that we all do feel pressure in different situations absolutely yeah Ev- everyone does yeah and so we can all learn on these things okay so i i mean that that lowering the cognitive load that you know focusing on just a couple of simple things i think is a really uh, simple um, a simple technique you talk as in terms of behaviors you talk just talk me through repair training and match so this would be preparing for something whether it be preparing for a round of golf but whether it be preparing to um, uh, give a best man speech or a work speech or anything this model that you have repair training and match can be applied in any any situation where you're going to have to perform under pressure yeah, and and I think well, what a, the the reason I came up with that is a lot of people, it, it came from sport, but very quickly, I went back and actually going, oh, you know, I've been using this when I was teaching. So if I go back to my um, teaching model, okay, and I, I asked the student who's not very good at English and so on, I said, okay, right, okay, we're we're now just going to, um, I want you to write it first, and I want you to write on every other line. Okay, and then we're going to look at it together and I'm going to underline areas that I think you can do things a little bit differently. So this is total repair. This is technique. Mm. Okay, Um, and and then again, I. So that's what repair means, technique. Yeah, technique all the time. So whether it's a golf swing, I might be looking at my backswing. And ironically, if I look at goal kicking and golf, the best repair is done into a net. So I cannot see the outcome. So, but but yeah, I've noticed though that you talk about say practicing a speech then in front of a mirror, for example. Abs- that- yeah, there's another one, and, and another way of doing that is practicing speech in front of a mirror. If you were to do it in front of the mirror, actually put a little mark where either your nose or mouth should be, that's up up. You know, so all the time as you look in the mirror, you say, oh, actually, oh, no, I'm going, no, no, let's just get my head up because I haven't got to that line. Yeah. You, you know, um, so it's not then you're not just thinking about the words and the speech, but you, you, you the, the other thing, the, 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 the posture. Um, yeah. The, the, and, and how you're the going. Body communication. Exactly. The, yeah. the, the delivery and stuff. So you, you, you kind of do. So all of that is technique. Yeah. Okay, but just because you do technique doesn't necessarily you're going to do the finished product. Okay, then we go into training, and that's the repetition. So it might be that okay, I've got this best man speech to do in a month's time. I'm dreading it. I've never done it before, and blah blah blah. So we practice our technique in the mirror. Okay, and then you might say, right, what I'm going to do is every evening I'm going to come home. I'm I'm going to read the first part of my the first paragraph of my speech. And I'm just going to go for it. But I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm going to have the piece of paper. I'm going to hold it nearly above my head. So I get used to delivering there. And I just repeat that. So that's training. Mm. That's like doing the same. So I've got my technique right. I've got my posture. I'm holding the speech in the right place, etc. Now I go through it and I do, you know, once every time I come back from work, I'm going to practice this. And it's amazing how that will happen. And then match practice would be, uh, I got two friends of mine, you know, and I'm going to say to them, look, I, 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 I want to practice something. Will you, will you tell me what you think? So now I've actually got a little audience and, and all right, it's not the real thing. So it's a bit like going to a stadium and practicing my goal kicking, but there's no crowd there. 
but at least I'm sort of nearly there and I'm going to have one shot at it. All right. And then I'm going to ask them what they think. So that would be my match practice. So you need to create the circuits, that pressure. Kind of. You're creating the pressure. The one shot, one opportunity. Yeah. Okay. And then it may be, well, I'll go back to training or I might even have to go back and change something in my technique. Yeah. Okay. And then that becomes your repair training match. And then when you come to the actual delivery, you know, it may be, well, I want to go to the room first because normally I have that thing that I look at on the mirror to get my head in the right position. Where do I need to be looking at in the hall to get the same position? So now I'm sort of, you know, if you like getting myself used to the stadium kind of thing. And it may be, it's not always possible that you actually say, look, can you do me a favor? I've got a friend of mine here. Can you go and sit in the back row? And I just want to deliver the first part of the speech to you in the back row. And can you hear it? Yeah. Brilliant. And, and, and then I'm then hopefully on the day, you know, you say, right, I've worked at it. I can do this, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And the other thing is, is often when you're doing something like that, and I remember talking to a, a, a young person who got his first England cap and he was a bit sort of worried and et cetera about the crowd. I said, when the national anthems are on, don't think of the crowd as being a crowd. Go along the stand with your eyes and try and guess what they do for a living. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and so everybody's human and realise that they would give their right arm to change places with you. Yeah. So just reframing it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you, you know, when you come to do the speech, you've got to remember that at least 50% of the audience are looking at you in awe because they can't do it. A trick I remember using once, I remember being at um, a, a big... Uh, work launch party and everyone went and you know i i felt a little anxious because it was a, a there was opportunity to network there were important people there sure. and all that kind of stuff and what i that the got into my head was okay i feel a bit anxious i and i had a little look around i know i know most people here will feel exactly the same yes and just getting in that mindset i was like well then in which case i've got absolutely nothing to worry about and it can it, it almost it, it, it didn't get rid of the feelings, but it made them almost irrelevant because I was like, okay, well then, A, this is normal and B, everyone else is going through the same thing. Absolutely. Therefore, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, single myself out as some kind of odd bod. No, absolutely. And, and that is so important. And that's almost the reverse empathy. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're actually saying, well, okay, so if the empathy they'll have with me is based on their own experience. Yeah, yeah. And most people would dread doing what I'm doing. Absolutely. Right, just, I mean, there's so many, uh, Dave. And actually, do you know what? I just want to say one thing. For anyone who plays golf, go and check out a video that Dave talks about, about how to practice golf properly on YouTube. It's absolutely brilliant and will revolutionise how you spend your time down at the range and will also save you a lot of time as well. Um, right, just, just one more area around pressure I want to pick out, which I found really interesting, was... Um, around the idea of sensory shutdown. So this idea of, you know, when our when our body essentially does react and we go into this spiral, this is how I interpret it, go into this spiral and, and it's pretty hard to get out of that nosedive when our body is it was in a, 
um, you know, playing up and and not behaving in the way we want to do that, whether that be internal feelings or all this kind of stuff. And you came out with a, 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 a few things that can help us to avoid the sensory shutdown in our body. Um, and posture, we've spoken about one, but you also talk about things like uh, physical fitness, the importance of that, staying fit, how that can help. But one I really liked as well is is, is match commentary. Yes. So, so commentating as you do something. And I was actually doing this on the way here as a little practice. So when walking down, I can see the bus stop. I can see, I can feel the wind on my face. And you're saying this out loud. Absolutely. And it's yeah. taking you out of your body and out of your head. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a, a, a massive debt to the fleet air arm for, for allowing me to have an experience that enabled me to sort of encapsulate where I, where I, where I sort of got the idea and, and, and a, a fighter pilot, okay, has to have vision 360. Yes, there's something on instruments, but a good fighter pilot, his head is never still. And if you look at a good a good rugby player and a good soccer player, their heads are never still. In other words, they're always taking in what's around them. Okay. And if it's too much and too quick, they tend to sort of close down. And when we're under pressure, one of the side impacts of adrenaline is it narrows our peripheral vision. So the irony is that as our peripheral vision narrows, we need to move our head even more. So so there's almost like a mini contradiction there. But actually, that's what happens. Okay, so if you if you take the example of um, the fighter pilot and um, I'm I'm saying to you know, so how do you you know, what do you commentate on? And and they said, well, it's simple. We we just um, uh, navigate, communicate, administrate. Okay, and and we just have this circle. I, I, I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, navigate. Okay, I look around. I constantly communicate, and that can be to myself. And administrate. I keep looking at the instruments to make sure. And I have this circuit of stuff that I keep going. And I and I said, well, I can. So when you're really under pressure, like when when you were in the Gulf War, what did you do then? He said, I just navigate, communicate, and the same thing. And I think what. And then it dawned on me, it's the self-talk. Mm. And, uh, you know, right, a flight. And, and even when I was in a Hawk fighter and I was the, the sort of the co-pilot and he was the pilot and he was commentating as cool as you like. OK, we're just going to bank on this now. We're gonna, this will be, uh, this is, will be get up to about three or four G. You'll feel this on your legs. The, the, the G suit will start squeezing your thighs and so on. OK, and you'll notice that your arms are heavier. So if you took one arm off and so on. And he was just continually talking as if we were sitting down in a coffee bar. And I'm thinking, well, how do they get like this? These are guys that have gone through university, got a degree and jo- joined the Navy or the Air Force and then become pilots and so on. And it's constant, constant practice and better than they were before. And the interesting thing is when I talk about people, you know, what's the difference in a world great Okay, and a, and a very very good player, and, and and you've already mentioned Federer is the world great takes responsibility for their own performance, and when I was at the Fleet Air Arm in in Yeovilton, several uh, I was being shown around the simulators. Several pilots were coming up and actually saying, "Can I um just book into the uh, the um the simulator, please? Um, this is for the Lynx helicopter." 
and these these are jet fighter pilots. And I'm going, and and the guy said, well, yeah, that's fine if you book in there. And I said, I said, excuse me for answering, but I know you you fly the Harrier. Why? He said because I want to be constantly bombarded with new things and review stuff because the brain that's constantly learning is more alert. And then they, with a smile, and they said, "And the more alert I am, the more likely I am to survive." <laughs> and I'm, and we were kind of joking about it, but actually, there was a very, very serious part of it. And I'm going, you know, that is so true. And then I remember when, I, you know, when I have patches of creativity, how my brain is firing. And there's a sort of an excitement and wow, yeah, I can see how this all goes. And then I want more of it, you know, and, and, and this is why, you know, when I was coaching with England, you know, I'd, I'd leave, wouldn't see players for six weeks. Then I'd come back and often the guys would say, oh, my God, what's he going to come up with this time? But it, it was kind of said in a nice kind of way because everything changes. Mm. And and uh, I think the learning brain is more prickly. The brain that actually constantly takes on uh, unforeseen circumstances and so on is a much more lively brain. And young kids love it. They don't go out to a preconceived menu of activities. They go and explore. And that's where the excitement is. I mean, they might explore and get themselves in trouble, but yeah. it, it, it is the excitement yeah. bit. And I, I learned so much. So back to the sensory shutdown is this continually looking round and seeing all the time. So if we had somebody in business, you know, who's a salesman, they need to be aware, you know, what's, how does the company operate? How do I fit in that? What's my posture like? And so they've got the small detail of getting rapport with the customer, but the larger detail of the image, what we're trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that needs to be constantly reviewed. Mm. And it's a bit like uh, one of the things that uh, we worked in with back three players or, or is that often when the game in rugby gets very, very tight and high pressured, often players look up and the size of the pitch is the width of the opposition because those are the people that have an immediate impact on what we're doing and they forget to look at the touchline. Now, the fighter pilot will be trained to look at the touchline. He'll go, touchline, touchline, now, where's the opposition? Yeah. And yet the immediacy is, where's the opposition? Yeah. And that's the key of sensory shutdown. It's constantly widening your vision. Yeah. And, it's, and it is deliberate practice that helps you do it. So because when we're in stressed or anxious, uh, our field of vision and our field of awareness invariably narrows, which is why it feels like the, w the walls are coming in on you. Exactly. So it's, yeah. so it's intentionally broadening your focus. So perhaps yes. I, mean, I'm, I can look over, over into the, an office here at the BBC uh, just now. So it'd be like, OK, look at that far wall. Look at this pillar to my left taking a few of the things to broaden that awareness and then in terms of that commentary be sp speaking okay i can perhaps you could whether it be internally or externally you could almost say i can see this i can feel this i can do this and that's gonna that will 
relieve some of the sensory shutdown yes. your body's going yes. through. So that's a very simple and pra- simple yeah. and effective way of, of getting control of, of your physiology, essentially. It, really. And if you go back to the speaking with it with people, like who's the person at the back? Who's the person at the far right? Who's the person at the far left? And if you're moving around the stage, and I say, right, I've seen the far left, look at the far right. Now I look at it. But ironically, if you look at an American quarterback, okay, yeah. who goes to the line of scrimmage, just receiving the ball. You look at his head. He turns his head and looks at one touch line. And if you see, and these are the, um, and then where the players related to that, looks at the other touch line and then stares at the front. If you practice that now, for example, uh, you can see in the office, I want you to now just have a little go at looking something on the, on the, on your far left. Now, yeah, yeah. so it might be a pillar or yeah. a desk or a particular person. Cardboard box, yeah. Right, good. Now look at something at the far right. Yeah. Okay, now I want you to stare in the middle. And if you open your eyes and try and take it in, you can still see the things on the outside. Yeah, and it's just massive. Yeah, so you've widened your vision by a deliberate process. Yeah. Do you know you you'll know Cheryl Calder, won't you? So yes. she was a vision coach for uh, as well. She's worked with um, England rugby around the same sort of successful period, and she always talks about, um, like for example, when driving, like looking at the furthest points on yes. you know on the on the horizon. And I found that again, that's that's a really useful thing. If you see someone who's anxious and stressed, you'll notice it's not they are bunched up physically, absolutely, and their awareness is is often down and in a small area yeah and it's just it's just reversing those things right i'll tell you what dave we've covered a load of ground in pressure i mean there's so much more you can talk about um one thing i just want to say that that actually on on your behalf essentially is getting the idea that adrenaline is not your enemy it's your friend absolutely because and you say you know high performers welcome adrenaline if you don't have adrenaline you're not going to perform at your best so don't be afraid of adrenaline welcome it Absolutely. It's it's fuel for a great performance. Simple as that. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on Don't Tell Me The Score. You're a genius and uh, and I'm so pleased that I plugged away and eventually got you uh, to talk. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Well, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Tell Me The Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.